Southern skies. Online media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by Aviation Advertiser, Australia's largest aviation online marketplace. Now featuring aviation employment classifieds. Make buying, selling and job search easy by doing it online. Visit aviationadvertiser.com.au today. And by the GA8 Airvan, proudly manufactured right here in Australia by Gips Aero. Gipsaero.com. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 75 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. We're sitting here in Melbourne on a purely IMC evening. It's terrible weather outside. I'm Steve Vischer, and sheltering from the rain is Grant McCarran. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How you going? Well, I'll tell you what, this spring weather, strong winds, lots of rain, and uh, to make matters worse, we've got to go to the Royal Melbourne show tomorrow. How awful. Well, look, mate, you did pick the right day not to go to work today because uh, the, the rain coming home was just intense, and I understand a lot of the train lines were closed or running extremely slow yes uh, I, had, I had a lot of fun getting home so uh, compared to normal they're just closed because they're always running extremely slow as you well know well there you go being a user of melbourne's sterling public transport system well i try and avoid it these days i generally run with cars but anyhow that's getting in the way of talking about flying mate well folks if you've listened to this program for quite some time you'll know that we uh, we like to talk about other podcasts other aviation podcasts and give a shout out to other podcasters when they come along and particularly when it comes to australian aviation podcasts as far as we can tell well there's three in australia at the moment there's us of course there's the guys at flight podcast and you may remember that I mentioned last year another podcast I'd found called the Flying Ant Podcast which was uh, put together by Anthony Crichton Brown. Now we've got three podcasts out there and Anthony uh, likes to focus on aerobatics. Well we're very pleased to say that uh, Anthony has decided that he doesn't want to do that podcast anymore. In fact he'd like to uh, come and do a little bit of work with us. So uh, that's fantastic and we welcome him to the show and he's on the line now. G'day Anthony. Evening Steve, evening Grant. Hey mate, how you going? Oh, I'm just fantastic how are you? Not too foul. Well welcome to the show mate and um, we're really pleased to have you here with us and um, you've got a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and some particular interests, uh, particularly with aerobatics that uh, I don't know about Grant, but I don't know that much about. So uh, perhaps you could uh, start by telling our audience uh, a bit about yourself, how you got into aviation and uh, where it's led you. Uh, That's a very interesting question. That's one I've often thought about how I answer that when people ask me how I got interested in aviation. I don't really know what sparked my interest. Um, it started at a reasonably young age, probably when I was a teenager. Uh, my brother was into flying in a, in a big way and, and um, perhaps I caught the bug from him. I started off by doing the usual thing, begging my parents to let me go and take flying lessons. Having grown up in Perth, I uh, went down to Jandicott, um, hung around the airport a lot, asked lots of silly questions, irritated all the instructors and did the odd flying lesson. Ended up going solo at 16, I think I was. I think I got a PPL at 17 and got a commercial at, I think I was 19. From there, did the usual thing, did the instructor rating, instructed for a little bit, did a multi-engine instrument rating. And I was pretty lucky because I only instructed for about 12 months before I was offered a job flying charter in a Cessna 310 at Perth Airport. And that was a big step uh, for me and for anyone for that matter because it was A, it was flying charter, B, it was flying a multi-engine aircraft and C, it was flying from a, uh, a major airport. And it was a very exciting opportunity and I was really lucky to get that opportunity with such low experience. And the company I worked for, who I was flying the 310 for, also had a, a Cessna Conquest and shortly thereafter they bought a Beechcraft King Air and an Embraer Brasilia. Flew the 310 for about 18 months and then uh, I stepped up onto the Brasilia and I was a Brasilia first officer for about two or 
three years, did about 1,200 hours on the Brasilia and then uh, ended up going to the airlines. And uh, I've been there for the last nine and a half years, almost 10 years. So uh, into the airlines, mate, and uh, what sort of aircraft did you uh, start off with there? Uh, my first posting was to fly a 747 and that was a entry-level position as a, as a second officer. Wow. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> I guess that's what any of us would say, yeah. And uh, did that for four years. Fantastic experience. Saw a lot of the world I had never seen before. And then couldn't do that forever, though. So I took promotion onto the 767, and I've been there ever since. Well, it must have been a big step up, I guess, Anthony, uh, coming from flying the turboprops to uh, flying something like the 747. It was just staggering to me getting into an airplane where, uh, now if there's any jumbo pilots, this is this, they can correct me if I'm wrong, but from memory, it carried 172,000 kilograms of fuel in the wings, the center body tank and the tailplane tank. And I had a maximum takeoff weight of 370, no, 390 tons. And that was just, just staggering numbers. I remember the first time I walked around it on the, on the tarmac and I was just, just couldn't believe it. A machine that size could become airborne, but there they you go. They're pretty big, aren't they? I've, I've, there's nothing quite like standing right next to those bogies and, and just you're, you're there and you're like, wow, I <laughs> can't even touch the bottom and huge and Amazing, yeah. Oh, you always marvel at the 747. In fact, the first time I ever flew in anything anywhere was the first time I went to the States when I was an exchange student at 17, and we flew on an Air New Zealand 747. I don't know what model it was. I remember we stopped in, I believe it was Tahiti on the way over, and obviously you could get out and have a walk around on the tarmac there back in those days, and I... I had the same impression. Like, I mean, you walked, there was no air bridge or anything. You got, you know, walked down the stairs and staring up at this enormous aircraft and just, you know, it's a thing of wonder when you, you know, at that time I'd really had very little exposure to aviation in any form, um, you know, apart from going to air shows with my dad and all that sort of stuff, but uh, never really been up that close to a, to a large aircraft. And, um, yeah, it really is a thing of wonder. Even now, uh, all these years later, you still look at these big aircraft and just marvel at the engineering and how they've managed to come up with technology that gets something that big and that heavy up into the air like it does. Yeah, I think it's a testament to the design from the 60s that the airframe wing combination hasn't changed that much and they're still producing them. In, it, they've got newer technology engines that are more efficient, more powerful, and they've got you know far superior avionics. And, and, and I'm sure lots of systems that we don't see as, as pilots also have become a lot better with new materials and new technology. But the basic airframe, the combination of the wing, the airframe, and the, the, the engine setup hasn't changed that much all those years and it's just a fabulous airplane and I think, they've got to, I think they're going to be around for a while too because it's... Yeah, it's an it's an awesome airplane, and and one thing about that is when um, when you start flying other jets, you appreciate just how good the jumbo is. So Anthony, um, you mentioned you're a second officer, and I guess um, perhaps we could talk about what the second officer does. Or, you know, for those of us who are in our audience who are, are not familiar, I mean, does that role vary that much, say, from the first officer? How does it all? How does the sort of hierarchy work in in that sort of environment? Well, the second officer's primary role is to provide in-flight relief for the captain and first officer to allow the extension of duty times. That's in a nutshell. Um, so what it means is the captain and first officer perform the takeoff. They they from the from the pushback until top of climb. Generally, the captain and first officer are in the control seats, and the second officer. Is there a support role? They might do um, help out with paperwork. They'll, of course, cross-check all the calculations for takeoff and landing that the captain and first officer make. Um, they might interact with the cabin crew to, to take some some of that uh, workload from the captain and, and first officer. Often the second officer will do the walk around and all those sorts of roles to support the, the, the guys in the control seat. Once they get into the cruise, there'll be a handover. So either the captain or the first officer will, will leave the flight deck and go and take a rest and, and the second officer will get in the control seat that was vacated and he'll then act in that role until 
until for you know for as long as that, that person's on their break and that that process will go around it'll be a, a shift change every few hours until prior to top of descent at some time before top of descent all the crew will come back on jitty and whoever's flying the approach and landing will then brief the other other pilots and what they're going to do and then they go back the reverse of what happens before the captain and first officer get back into the control seats the second officer takes a step back and he becomes a support role again and that, that's the way all over the landing so um how do you find the 767 to fly after the 747? The 767 is a generation before. Well, no, that's not true. The 767, I came from the 747-400, which is the latest generation of Jumbo. The 767 is a generation just before that. So the technology is slightly earlier, but I guess an analogy is when you get in a 767 from a 747, it would be like getting in a Cessna 172 from a Cessna 182. Everything's very familiar. The controls look the same. They feel the same. The knobs are the same shape. The control column looks the same. It's even a high wing with fixed gear and all that sort of stuff looks very similar, but the numbers are different. The performance is different. Might have a bigger engine. And so the 767 was a lot like that for me. I found that experience was was that it was felt very familiar um, enough to make me be able to say interact with the flight management computer quite comfortably. But being a twin engine airplane, it was on steroids compared to the jumbo. <laughs> a little bit more responsive, huh? Uh, the thrust to weight ratio typically is a lot better. And it's a little bit more uh, sensitive on the controls. And I know that's a hard thing to swallow as a, it's a thing an airplane that weighs 172 tons is sensitive, but from the jumbo to the 7.6, yeah, it was a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more, um, bit more hands-on. And, um, and yeah, the, like I said, the thrust to weight ratio was the performance off the ground was staggering compared to the jumbo. And it, just a lovely airplane to fly though. It's got its challenges like every airplane, but overall the Boeing got it right when they made it 7.6.7 in a lot of ways. Mate, uh, airline flying is one thing, but uh, aerobatics is another. And, um, you know, it's funny, I've had sort of a very brief introduction to it with that uh, jet ride I had recently, but uh, you're very keen on aerobatics. And in fact, you've got your own uh, pits. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I am. It's um, that's my passion. I, I love flying the big, the big aircraft, and that's uh, that's fantastic. It's a real privilege and a pleasure. But uh, the experience that you're giving to your passengers on a big airplane um, limits what you can do, and uh, that's completely expected. Um, the aerobatic flying is a different kettle of fish altogether. It's, it's lots of fun. It's uh, it's what I'm really passionate about, and um, and it's something I'm only pretty new to actually. And I'm a bit of a uh, amateur when it comes to the aerobatics. I've only really started doing it recently. Uh, how recently? When did you start getting into it? Probably about three years ago, properly. Before that, I had an aerobatic rating, which I did in a 152 aerobat years and years <laughs> ago. I think I did it with my instructor's rating. I didn't really enjoy it that much. And looking back, I realized I didn't enjoy that much because I wasn't really doing it properly. Um, but about three years ago, I, I got the bug for it and uh, it's been an obsession ever since. How did you get the bug? What, what was the inspiration? A friend of mine, when I was based in Cairns, a friend of mine was up there also based in Cairns and he had a connection with the warbirds at, at Mariba and he was flying all the warbirds. He was flying the Windjill, the Chipmunk, the, the Harvard, uh, the T-28. He, was, he had his hand on everything and he was really into the aerobatics and I can't remember how it came about but he took me for a ride one day. He said, I can't walk over and fly in the warbirds. And he took me for a fly in the Windjill and we did some arrows. And I thought, hey, this was actually quite quite good. I remember thinking before the flight, I wonder if I'll be sick. And I came back and I thought, I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel distressed. I just really enjoyed it. I felt like it was really comfortable. So uh, he was really into it. And um, he and I did a bit more flying together. And I just got the bug for it. And he, he so it was his fault. <laughs> uh, and since then, I've just gotten more and more into it. I went to um, the next step from there was uh, – 
came down to Sydney and went and saw um, Phil Unicum at Action Aerobatics at Maitland. And I sort of said, told him my experience. I didn't have much aerobatic time. And he said, he said, what level of aerobatics are you at? And I said, pretty basic. He goes, well, we'll soon find out. So he threw me in the, and we went up in his pit special and bashed around for hours and hours and hours. And he beat me into submission and taught me how to fly aerobatics properly. Well, that's such a thing, isn't it? I mean, there's there's aerobatic manoeuvring, I guess, gently, and then there's full-on aerobatics. And uh, I, I guess uh, you, you talk about the way that you're introduced to it. Um, I, I perhaps think that's probably a better way to do it is sort of a gentle introduction because I remember the first introduction I had to it was in a pits and it terrified me, you know, half to death and I never did it again, in, in fact, until I went up in this uh, L39 recently. So, and you're only talking 18, 20 years in between because that first experience I had, I thought, no, this is not for me. But uh, I, I often think now, perhaps if I'd had a bit of a more staged or gentle introduction to it, it perhaps uh, wouldn't have uh, shaken me up as much as it did at the time. Oh, for sure. I mean, Phil was quite big on delineating between the three types of aerobatics. I think he, I think I can quote Phil when he said there were three types of aerobatics. There was, or well, there is, there's air show aerobatics, there's competition aerobatics, and there's passenger aerobatics. And I suppose in there, in between there somewhere is, you know, what I go and do when I'm just fiddling around for a bit of fun. In reverse order of severity, if you like, passenger aerobatics is what you do when you take your mates up for a fly. It's gentle. It's all positive G. It's in balance. Um, it might be a, a, a loop and a, and a barrel roll and some wing overs and, and some stuff that's a lot of fun. You get to go upside down and you get to put the airplane through all, all three axes through 360 degrees, but it's not uncomfortable. Whereas air show aerobatics and competition aerobatics, the comfort of the pilot has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on how you fly. It's how it looks from the ground. And often it's extraordinarily uncomfortable to make it look right from the ground. Yeah, rolling turn comes to mind on that one. <laughs> yeah, rolling turns. I haven't done those yet. Uh, they look very challenging, but they, um, but even just to sit there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, they're, they're they're really hard to do, and and especially once again to get to make it look right from the ground. If you're being judged, it's yeah. very difficult. And do you have uh, designs on uh, you know perfecting your skill and perhaps doing some either display work or some competition work, anything like that? Uh, I've done, I've done a few competitions. And, um, but I, no, I don't have, I, I don't have the time really to get into doing, um, the air show scene. And there's plenty of guys around who make a, make a living out of it. I've sort of got my professional flying tied up with my airline job. So, um, for me, it's just a hobby. Tell us so, a bit about your aircraft and, uh, how you came to come across it. Cause uh, I guess there's not that many pits around. I mean, was it a local aircraft? Did you have to source it from overseas? Uh, I bought it out of the States. I bought it from the USA, I guess with the dollar as it is. And I bought it about, uh, early, early this year, lots of them in the States and they, they're reasonable reasonably good value in the USA um, and yeah, I imported it in a sea container and put it back together over here. So you've got your own pits and you said you were learning uh, down near Sydney in, in a pits but uh, have you done aerobatics in any other air, kind of aircraft? Oh, um, actually that's something I forgot to mention. You asked me about how I got into it. When I first came down to Sydney, I went for a ride with Richard Wilshire and we Richard's the guy who's um, multiple Australian unlimited champion and he's just been overseas to the World Aerobatic Championships and um, he had an extra 300L, which is a really top-end hot rod aerobatic airplane. Uh-huh. And I went for a ride with him and I've seen him fly and Richard can hurt you bad if you wanted to, but he was really good to me and he gave me a really good experience and that's the second part of the what gave me the bug. So yeah, I went for a fly in, the, in Richard's extra 300L and uh, that's probably the second part of the what made me, got me addicted to aerobatic flying. Yeah, very nice aircraft, the extras. I haven't been in the 300, but the, I mean, the, the 200 was just awesome. Oh, they're a lovely airplane, yeah. If you want to have your head going through various parts of your body as you're throwing it around the sky, it's, it's the one. Oh, and I did go for a fly with Matt Hall and his Giles. Oh, rub it in. Oh, rub and it that, in. And yeah. that got my – and that gets your attention when, when oh, Matt puts you through your paces. 
Yes. I hope you're listening to this, Matt Hall. You know, we've you know, we've been good to you. How can we haven't had a ride? Well, I was actually he was flying my friend's aeroplane and he did it as a favor to my friend. I remember him saying to me as we taxied out, he said uh, he had a harness in the back that was a ratcheting harness, a bit like a ratchet strap you have yep. on, a, on a truck. Yep. And it ratchets ratchets you down so you're really locked into the seat and the front seat didn't have the ratchet. And as we're taxiing out, he said to me, Oh, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, what do you like? Man? I don't care. You know, just, you know, I want to see what the airplane's like. And he said, what don't you want to do? And I said, oh, I don't want to do too much negative. And he went, okay. And then I, and as, he, as he's saying, I hear this click, 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 as he's ratcheting himself down tighter and tighter and tighter. I'm thinking, oh, no, here we go. But uh, no, he was good too. He was fantastic to fly with, Matt. He, um, once again, gave me a really good experience and uh, made it very comfortable for me. And, and as the flight progressed, he stepped it up and up and up. And he um, was fine. I had a great time with him. He, put, yeah. he even put the smoke on for me and did some tumbles back down through the smoke. Yeah, that's that's always fun when you get to go through your own smoke and everything. We we did that in the yak once or twice. Anything that gets a bit of vitamin G has got to be good. The thing about G is um, you do lose the tolerance. It's like fitness. The more you do it, the, your body attunes itself to it, and um, yeah, you get better and better at it as you, the more you exposure you have to it. There's no there's no uh, substitute to just doing it. Well, speaking about, uh, I guess, aerobatics to a certain degree in high-performance aircraft, I thought we might uh, just touch quickly on the Reno Air Races. Of course, we were talking about the Reno Air Races uh, quite a lot before they happened. Uh, obviously, our friends at Pracy Racing were uh, going over there to uh, race their L39, but of course, uh, by now, you'll all be aware of the uh, tragic events that have happened there. Terrible loss of life, uh, loss of a great pilot, loss of a great aircraft, and perhaps even put the event in jeopardy. What do we think about some of the things that have come out uh, since that uh, that horrible weekend a couple of weeks ago? Well, what I've, one of the things I've been hearing is some of the people, including those who are injured, saying, don't stop the races. There's been word that some, uh, you know, shall we say, uh, ambulance chasing uh, lawyer type people have been trying to say that spectators don't really realize the danger they're in. And most of the spectators have turned around and said, bull, we know exactly how dangerous it is because a lot of us are pilots, especially the ones who are in the box seats where the impact was. So if you go to a race, you expect accidents to possibly happen and you know that you're not totally safe. I mean, you know, look at NASCAR, look at Formula One, even horse racing. People have died or been seriously injured when things have gone wrong. We've taken lots of steps to prevent it happening again. I think it would be absolutely tragic if people use this uh, like horrible accident as a reason to shut the whole thing down. I think better to learn from it and modify and move on. There's been a lot of theories going around about why this may have happened and I've heard on uh, various sources around the place and uh, on a couple of different podcasts that perhaps even they may have been able to get some telemetry out of that aircraft uh, being as it was uh, quite heavily modified uh, for racing purposes. So we hope that'll uh, shed some light. But uh, without uh, going too much into speculation, what do we think about the, well, I guess it's hard to avoid speculation talking about it this way, but there's a theory going around that perhaps uh, something came off, perhaps the uh, trim tab on the rear stabilator may have uh, come away and uh, changed the uh, the aerodynamic uh, performance of that aircraft considerably. I mean, is the, what do you think? Is that the probably most likely theory? And I guess Anthony, yeah. uh, with with your experience, you're probably in a better position to know than we are. Well, I think it's undoubtable that the trim tab did come off because there's photos of that, and I think there's a video of it as well that I've seen on the internet of the trim tab coming off. Uh, I guess the question is, did it come off and cause the accident, or did it come off as a result of an overstress because of the of the manoeuvre that was pulled? It certainly looked to me, and I'm, once again, it's difficult. You know, I really, I really hesitate to speculate because I'm not. I don't know anything about Reno racing. I don't know anything about P51 Mustangs and the unlimited class aircraft. But from the untrained eye, it certainly looks like he's had a some sort of flight control failure. And the aircraft looks like it bucked a bit. And when I say bucked, it looked like it might have had a, a stall at high G, high speed. Um, and then the rest is, you know, 
the rest is history. So yep, I don't know whether the, some sort of failure caused the aircraft to go and to have the high-speed stall and the high-G or whether the high-G caused the structural failure. If there is telemetry, that'll, you know, that'll end all the debate, all debate about it. They definitely have got telemetry. Um, the, the ground crew were getting information beamed down to them. Uh, they have recovered chips on board the aircraft that they're sending off to the NTSB for review. Um, according to the NTSB's preliminary, they are citing the um, the trim tab as a major factor. Uh, it says here, uh, was in a steep left turn towards the home pylon when, according to photographic evidence, the airplane suddenly banked momentarily to the left before banking to the right, turning away from the race course and pitching to a steep nose-high attitude. Witnesses reported and photographic evidence indicates that a piece of the airframe separated during these maneuvers. After roll and pitch variations, the plane, airplane descended in an extremely nose-low altitude, sorry, attitude and collided with the ground and box seat area near the center of the grandstand seating area. So basically at this stage, it looks like a runaway trim tab may have helped cause the problem. And if not, the breaking off of the part definitely led to it. Pitch up, possibly pulled so many Gs. I mean, that tail wheel was down. That's been popped out. Takes a bit of effort to pop that out. There are people talking about how you couldn't see him and the pilot in some of the shots. There is a theory that maybe his seat had have, had have broken in the Gs as he went up. But... Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty full on and it's going to be a little while before we get the full report. But they did get the onboard data box. Although it's damaged, it's going off to be examined. Camera housings, detached memory cards from the airplane's onboard camera and um, memory cards and numerous still and video image recordings are all going off for evaluation. It's interesting that um, the G has become a factor in this accident because no, I just thinking, it just came to mind the other day because um, doing the aerobatics, we're, we're quite aware of G and you know, I've done a lot of reading about it for my own education. And um, I believe the Reno races, they don't pull high G when they're racing. I think they're only doing up to about 4G because they say any more than that, the energy losses outweighs the t- the turn radius so yep. i guess what i'm getting at is because pulling a lot of g you might give you a tighter turn therefore you have to cover less distance to get a better track time but pulling g creates drag and so there's there's a balance between you know the optimum g to pull on the turns and i think the guys from pracy racing were talking about it one of your earlier podcasts saying they wouldn't they do more than 4g sustained yep. so 4g for a guy who's doing a lot of g and is trained in it is you know you can sustain that almost indefinitely especially if you if you if you strain you, and you've got the right fitness you know 4g should be a, a cakewalk but if you're pulling 4g and then continuously and then the airplane suddenly pulls on 10 you probably only got a second or two to to do something about it or you're going to be getting close to g locking and blacking out and in fact if you hit straight from four to ten i reckon based on the charts that i've seen and this is just for an average person of average fitness and all those other uh, human averages um you probably get about two seconds before you total g lock and then once you've g locked um it's going to take some time for you to regain consciousness basically once once you g lock you you start you can start to come out of it once the g comes off but then it's a series of seconds first the g's got to come off then your brain's got to start working again then you've got to figure out where you're at pick up all the bits and move on and all that is a lot of seconds uh, I, I know when I've had the joys of G-lock uh, or come close to it and man it's, it's the closest thing I can put it to is like when the dentist gives you the nitrous and it's like nang nang la la woohoo <laughs> and, and then you've got to try and figure out where you're at and all the while he, the, the ground's coming right up at you you know that kind of thing and so yeah they, as the praises were saying it's it's a sustained 4g kind of thing you're not really going to too hard because of exactly what you said you, you don't want to um, slow down too much you just want to have that good curve and then um, bang something goes wrong wham you're up uh, they 
the word's going around about 13 Gs, they reckon, but um, which, as you said, is going to really kick you around. So he could have very well been lights out because of the Gs that were pulled as it snapped up and then over. I mean, at 13G, I'm not saying he did do 13G, but at 13G, there's no amount of straining or G suits that's going to save you. You're going to be G-locking. So you've got a couple of seconds because your brain can function without blood, without oxygen for a couple of seconds. And and I guess that's why, you should ask Matt Hall this question, because I guess that's why the Red Bull guys can snap on 10G, but they've got to back it off pretty quickly and give, and give some time for the blood to circulate back up to your brain. Yeah. But you couldn't pull, you know, that G for very long before you'd be passing out. No, that's, that's what you see in Red Bull. It's a snap 10 to 12, you know, like they've got a 12G limit. So they're snapping up to 10G, but sustained is always like four, six, eight max that kind of thing yeah i was talking to a mate of mine who's a fighter pilot and he said it's certainly a challenge for the future generation of fighters um mm-hmm. where they've got massive power to weight ratio and they can turn and sustain i don't know the numbers but say 6g or 7g and they can sustain it for you know indefinitely in a, in a turning dogfight. and yeah. um those guys are really that's why they do so much training for that sort of stuff well, speaking about the Praces, uh, I guess we should mention that we were in contact with Mark Jr. Uh, a couple of days after the event, um, and the good news uh, on that front is that they are both okay and their aircraft is okay. They were relatively close to the incident when it happened. Uh, in fact, they both saw the aircraft go over and uh, they they witnessed the incident, I believe. So uh, they were understandably pretty shaken up about that, and the media uh, scrutiny for those guys was intense, which is why we haven't uh, bothered them for an interview. They've received a lot of inquiries and a lot of well wishes, obviously, uh, and they did uh, want us to pass on on their next show, which is, which is uh, this one that you know they appreciate that people were thinking of them, and uh, just to let everyone know that they are okay and uh, they'll be back in Australia relatively soon. I think Mark Junior said he would be willing to have a chat about it, uh, you know, as uh, things calm down and uh, in due course. So uh, we're certainly not going to put any pressure on them for that sort of stuff. It's uh, you know a horrible thing that happened there, uh, but uh, hopefully when they're ready and they feel comfortable about it, we'll be able to have a bit of a chat to them about it. So uh, that'll all be in due course. Okay, mate. Well, uh, changing the uh, track just to tad and uh anthony mate you're going to be uh doing some recording for us here and there and having some chats with people it's not just aerobatics you're interested in though you're now doing in addition to flying the heavy iron you're also doing a lot more ga flying again aren't you yes i am and loving it actually i've fallen back in love with small airplanes so is it just the pits that you're flying outside of the 767 or what else are you flying my wife letting me buy my own airplane it's a bit hard to then go and justify renting other ones on top of that (laughs) (laughs) an excellent point (laughs) (laughs) but uh but no i have been a little bit of flying with some friends in their aircraft but no mainly in my airplane yeah are you able to do instructing and all that sort of stuff while you're working in the airlines or is that a big no-no yes we can but we've got to tell them what we're doing and I think there's a limit on how many hours we can do and it can't interfere with our flight and duty times for work. So, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, one of the things we've wanted to cover in this show for a long time is some of the more nitty gritty issues when it comes to flying, uh, training issues, perhaps uh, issues to do with aerodynamics. I know you've got some interesting thoughts on stalls and how to handle them and, you know, the, perhaps some uh, some other topics to do with uh, airspace management. Do you want to talk about your theories on stalling? I know we had a, way back on, I think, Boxing Day last year, we had quite a, an interesting discussion about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that my understanding of uh, stalling and flying beyond the, the buffet was probably pretty poor until I started flying aerobatics. And I, I have to credit Phil Unicum up at Maitland on giving me an education on uh, on what stalling is all about and uh, in more broadly emergency maneuver training in that regard. And it really opened my eyes up to perhaps how poor my understanding of it was. And I think that it's without being unkind, it's widely misunderstood and it certainly was for me because it's, it gets so little attention in the syllabus of GA flying when you're doing your GFPT and your PPL. But it's it's still something that causes a lot of people a lot of grief 
and people still die in airplanes because of um, stalls and spin accidents. And uh, probably not the biggest killer in aviation, but certainly it's it's significant enough to get a, get enough get attention. According to some of the safety guys in the US, it seems like it's every other week or so they're losing another one due to a stall spin on approach. Yeah, and it's and it's and I think the the thing that's most frustrating about it is it's a completely preventable accident with the right training, with the right set of tools, and the right training and and the and the right instruction. There's no reason that anyone should end up in a stall spin accident. The good thing about doing the training is that you become a lot more comfortable with it and it allows you more range in the way you fly. Phil debunked a lot of the myths to me by, you know, theory and then you go out and demonstrate it in the pits and the pits is a perfect airplane for it because there is a fully unlimited aerobatic airplane for all intents and purposes. As a student, um, I was able to put it in all sorts of attitudes and make all sorts of errors and mistakes in the airplane and take them to the extreme to the point where I'd hand over, you know, and that was fantastic because I could see that it was recoverable. Is this related to the um, stall stick position? Ah, the, the mighty stall stick position. That's a, uh, that's, that causes more arguments in bars between aerobatic pilots and just any other subject, I reckon, the stall stick <laughs> position. Interesting. But, uh, because the theory and the practical application of it um, is understood differently by different people. But it, essentially, yeah, the stall stick position is um, is a philosophy that uh, no matter what speed the aircraft is doing or what G the aircraft's pulling, the wing will always stall when the control stick is in a certain position. If the control stick is forward of that position, and we're talking about a positive upright stall, the wing will not stall no matter what where the airplane's nose is pointing and no matter how much speed you may or may not have and if the stick is after that position the wing will be stalled so simply if the aircraft stalls or is buffeting to a approaching the stall, um, all you do is move the stick forward of that stall stick position and the wing becomes unstalled. And that's that's the theory in a nutshell. Please don't take that as instruction. That's just me <laughs> explaining it to you. Don't go out and try it. But that's the nutshell of it. Now, there's lots of other complicating factors in it, such as CFG and different aircraft design. And it certainly won't work in aircraft with stabilator trims like heavy aircraft, like jets that you, tr- you t- trim the whole stab. You don't trim a trim tab to change the elevator position. But uh, it just gives a good understand- a good tool for the student and the aerobatic pilot to use to handle stalling and unstalling and once you get comfortable with it and you fly aerobatics a lot stalling is just part of it it's just like taking off and landing when you look back at the uh, the ab initio pilot who's going up and uh, being put through a stall for the first time and you know having that rather unnerving feeling that the aircraft's about to fall out of the sky i mean do you think there are uh, ways better to teach that because uh, one of the things i was thinking was i remember back at natfly when i uh, went up and flew the brumby and we went up went up and did some stalls in that and i mean that aircraft is so nimble and we were holding that thing on the buffet at very low airspeed and i mean you you almost couldn't make it stall. Now, I'm thinking that uh, there's a lot of uh, people now that are looking at the um, the RAOs path to do their ab initio training. I mean, uh, perhaps we should be getting them up into aircraft that, uh, with all due respect to the modern versions of these aircraft, perhaps some aircraft that are older and a bit more challenging. I think that if I had my time over again and learned to fly, I would do it with a flying school such as Red Baron or, or up there with Phil up at Action Aerobatics. So one of those flying schools where stalling and aerobatics is the normal part of the GFPT syllabus. Mm-hmm. And it normalizes the stall and the spin and, and that training normalizes doing aerobatics. And I think that's really would be a really valuable tool to have. And not everyone has to love aerobatics, but just to make it part of your bag of tricks that you can do it if you need to is fantastic. And, and I think that uh, specifically to stalling and I guess the next thing after a stall, if, you, if, it, if it continues is a, is a spin, 
I mean, when I first did stalling in my GFPT, I remember the lesson to this day. It was back in 1994. So I remember thinking to myself that this is going to be scary. This is going to be like a roller coaster. It's going to be out of control. And probably I probably thought that because, well, I know I won't say I wasn't taught it properly because I was taught by an ex-military guy who was very good, but probably that more so that it was my own apprehension. And we went out and we did a stalling lesson and that was fine. And I recovered from the stall and all that happened and uh, came back and never did it again. And how can that, and that's like, imagine if you went and, if you went out with an instructor and did one landing and then that was it, you never got taught landings ever again. Yeah, well, it's, it's like the difference between going out and learning to drive a car and then doing an advanced driving course, a defensive driving course, and a, a bit of a skid training course. You know, if that kind of thing you'd think should be trained into everyone because it would make us a lot safer drivers in terms of not spinning off the road or things like that, that happens all too often. The same thing with flying. You, you push it a little bit further to the limit. In, and part of the problem seems to be that a lot of instructors don't want to go and train it because they've had the same, you know, we've done one or two and that's it. And all they've heard the stories of, you know, you, you stall a 152 in the wrong way and bang, she's over on her back and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they're actually afraid of going out and pushing it for some of them. So they're Look, the ones saying we shouldn't be training it. And understandably because they haven't been exposed to themselves yeah. and, and, and how can they teach something that they're not comfortable with themselves? Exactly. What sort of emphasis is put on these sort of manoeuvres when you're doing your training to become an instructor? Um, very little. In the Australian CASA syllabus, I believe from memory that you have to do one lesson where you go and spin. And you have to, I think you might have to demonstrate a spin and a spin recovery. And I, and I don't even know how far you develop a spin. It's a long time ago I did mine. It wouldn't have been, have been one turn. And it's a bit like uh, it was one of those things I remember that we had to go and do just to tick the box. Mm-hmm. We didn't really learn much from it. We just went and did it. And the theory is, is that if you are with a student, who mishandles the airplane to the extent where you enter a spin that as an instructor you can recover. So you're not going out to learn how to teach spinning. You're just learning how to recover from an inadvertent spin if a student puts you there. Yeah, well, see, I mean, you know, I, I never did an instructor rating, so I, I, I wouldn't know, but it seems to me like that would be, particularly in these days where there's such a focus on uh, occupational health and safety, you'd think they would have, well, I would have thought they would have had a much greater emphasis on that sort of stuff, purely because if a student does the wrong thing and drops a wing, you, you need yeah. to be able to be confident that you can get yourself out of that situation and recover from it. Look, I think there's a bit of history here, and I'll try and make it quick. I think the history from, from what I've picked up over the years of being in this industry is that years ago, that's what you did. You went and let fly in a tiger moth, and your hand hand swung the propeller to start it and you taxied out in the grass and you went flying and you didn't talk on the radio because you know who needs radios and uh, you went and did all those things you spun it you aerobatted it you took it off you landed it you crosswind landing you did you know all those great things but as we became more and more litigious in western culture and western society the manufacturers had to build the aircraft safer and safer and safer and got to the point where aircraft like a Cessna 152 is just so benign that it's almost it's not impossible to spin because I've spun Cessna 152s but they you have to really make it go there and in fact that got to the point where the Piper Tomahawk was born from instructors who are frustrated that, that the other series of ab initio training aircraft are too easy to fly. And so they come up with a tomahawk to make it a bit more challenging. Yeah, hence so, the name Traumahawk. Traumahawk, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've had some well, trauma in the hawk. Yes. The other, the other part of it is also that uh, there's a bit of you know, experience built up in fear because people would be training, doing training and stalls and spins and all that, and something could go wrong and they'd crash. Well, yeah, and so and every time it's, exactly, and every time there's a crash in aviation, um, we look to the manufacturers to design that out of the aircraft. So years and years ago, it was 
controlled flight into terrain. And now we've got GPWS systems that are so advanced, it'll tell you, you know, maybe 10 seconds out that you're going to fly into the side of a hill or an obstacle or your, or your flight path is projected to do so. Yep. And you get all sorts of audible and visual warnings. Aircraft may have, uh, you know, certainly in the States, they had some pretty famous mid-air collisions. So we got TCAS and now TCAS will guide you and separate aircraft from each other, you know, onboard system separate aircraft from each other without intervention of air traffic control. And that's an emergency maneuver, but it's there if you need it. And so every time there's an accident or a series of accidents and, and statistics spike, we look to the, to the manufacturers to design those accidents, accident causes out of the aircraft. And, and I guess maybe years ago at some stage, I don't know, maybe they had a spate of spinning accidents and people were spinning to the ground. So the manufacturers had to design spinning out of the aircraft. I don't know. I mean, this is out of my area of expertise. but uh, and, and that's not a bad thing because a lot of private pilots don't want to fly an airplane that's easy to spin. And so there's nothing wrong with creating an airplane that is benign stall characteristics and, and difficult to get into a spin. That's not a problem, but perhaps not the perfect training airplane. Perhaps maybe that's an airplane you can have to fly around in once you've got your, your basic skills you know, down pat. Well, that's yeah. where they used to have a basic trainer and an advanced trainer, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, trying, when I learned to fly, it was Cessna, Cessna, Cessna. So it was it was pretty homogenous. It wasn't much more advanced than, you know, the 172 was the advanced trainer. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was talking about back in the days, the Tiger Moth and the next ones. And, you know, a lot of the military guys, you'd talk about doing your initial training, then you'd do advanced training, things like that. And yeah, the idea that the advanced trainer would put you through your paces a lot more and you didn't want to just throw a complete greenhorn ab initio into it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the RAF, I guess, say subscribe to that theory because I have CT4s where you start and then you go on to the PC-9 and then, you know, if you're going to be a fighter pilot, you go and fly the Hawk. So it's certainly a progressive step. But having said that, um, I'm sure that the CT4s, they go and do aerobatics and they go and stall them and spin them. And oh, yeah. they do the same in the PC-9. They'll go and do the same in the jets. And That was you know. one of the first aircraft I did aerobatics in was a CT4. There you go. It's a fundamental skill, and I think it's something that should be anyone who wants to fly an airplane. And I, I'm not apologetic about saying this. I think that anyone who wants to hold a pilot's license should have the ability to be comfortable, at least not going and doing it all the time, but at least have had sufficient training. If you find yourself in that situation, you can get yourself out of it. Yep. Yes. Well, this um, this dovetails very neatly into another subject I'd we'll probably uh, put off to another podcast, but uh, this would dovetail nicely into my theory about nighttime flying and uh, my thoughts that it should be incorporated into the PPL syllabus rather than being a separate rating, but uh, that might just be because I learned in a country where they do that sort of thing. <laughs> I've never understood the night VFR rating. No, I don't understand it either, but uh, let's let's that could uh, keep us going for at least another hour and would probably generate a lot of hate mail, and I'm up for that, <laughs> but uh, we haven't got time for that. I tell you what, uh, we're running a little long, so we'll go off to an ad break now, and uh, when we come out the other side of the ad break, uh, we put Anthony straight to work, and we actually earlier this week recorded an interview with uh, Grant Piper from the Australian Aerobatic Club, uh, and he's talking about uh, the two Aussie competitors that uh, went across to Italy recently and competed in the uh, World Aerobatic Championships. Uh, that'll be coming up just after the break. Always wanted to be a Top Gun? Looking for the ultimate heart-pumping experience? JetRide gives you that and more. With your personally tailored flight and individual gift pack, JetRide will make your dreams come true. At up to 900 k's an hour in a Soviet-era L-39, this is the jet fighter thrill of a lifetime. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Nothing is impossible. 
Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviationadvertiser.com.au. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. The World Aerobatics Championships were held recently in Italy at the start of September, in fact, and uh, two Aussie pilots, Richard Bulcher and Paul Andronicu, went across and uh, represented us with distinction. Probably didn't come back with the results they were looking for, but that's okay. So we thought it was a good opportunity for us to have a bit of a chat about the championships and uh, the aerobatics scene here in Australia in general. On the line to uh, help us out with that is the president of the Australian Aerobatic Club, Grant Piper. G'day, Grant. G'day. Well, welcome to the show, mate, and we appreciate you coming on. Uh, perhaps if you can tell us a little bit about uh, competition aerobatics in general and uh, how they how the scene is here in Australia. Oh, it's fairly um, active, really. We're trying to push it along a bit more um, recently. The club nationwide's only got about 150 or 60 members, and that fluctuates a little bit. With um, 40 to 50 active pilots, they come and go, but that would be the core. We have four major competitions, mostly up and down the east coast of Victorian Queensland and New South Wales state championships and then the national championships. Um, we fly this five categories from graduate, sportsman, intermediate, advanced and unlimited. Uh, the higher categories, advanced, unlimited are international categories. Uh, so everyone around the world flies the same rules and the same, same uh, scoring system. We're just trying to get a bit more exposure to the world scene at the moment and try and uh, learn uh, what's happening overseas and to lift the standard here. And, and that was the primary reason for sending the guys across to this world championships, even though we'd been out of the scene for 11 years, we, we really needed to dip our toe in the water and, uh, and see what's going on. Grant, are most of the pilots in the club have a strong aerobatic background or is it is there a wide variety of backgrounds for the pilots? Well, when they come to the club, I don't think anyone's has a real deep aerobatic background and uh, and I think that's mainly because aer- competition aerobatics is fairly unique and you just can't get to do it anywhere except, um, I guess, joining the Australian Aerobatic Club and coming along and seeing how it works and trying to fly sequences and figures the way the judges and the rules say they're to be flown. But the people that come to the club have a, a lot of experience or a broad range of experience um, before they rock up. Some are professional pilots. Most are just private pilots, weekend hackers um, who have an interest in, in uh, aviation and aerobatics for some funny reason. Um, but they can come from all walks of life, whether it's um, tradesmen or uh, plumbers or lawyers or doctors. And, um, you know, a lot of self-employed people, I suppose, tend to come to the club. But their aviation experience varies right across the board. When you come to uh, talking about uh, champion or competition flying, I mean, are there many events that uh, occur in this part of the world, Australia and New Zealand, every year? Yeah, well, there's uh, the four main championships I mentioned earlier in Australia, uh, and South Australia is trying to start up a state championship, so that would be a fifth. 
the New Zealand have won annual championships. I don't know. Uh, they do have some regional competitions, but I'm not completely familiar with the scene in uh, New Zealand. But they definitely do have a national championships once a year. So you know, they're the the you know the main opportunities to compete uh, are the four championship events, and then uh, the individual chapters may organise training weekends or or mini comps in their own state. I'm interested in the World Aerobatic Championships. They're, they're held in Italy. I mean, is it this sort of thing you generally, I guess, sort of associate, or I would associate more with uh, places like North America, where they've, they've got a you know quite an enthusiastic scene. But uh, over there in Europe, obviously, uh, it's got quite a following as well, uh, sufficient that they can uh, support a championship like this. Well, it's not that unusual. The sport of aerobatics is still quite Eurocentric. It always has been, and it's been dominated by the Europeans. America's got a big air show scene, and they do have a big aerobatic club, and they have lots of competitions, uh, but historically they haven't been um, leading the pack in, in aerobatics, in the sport of aerobatics, in competition. This year they, um, they their team did do quite well and they got the, the bronze medal for the, the team trophy and so they, they are improving and if they continue like on the program they're on now, they will be a force in the coming years. Grant, can you just touch on the way the scoring system works perhaps and explain uh, how the, uh, the figures are worked out and how the judges score the routines? There's a catalogue of figures, a dictionary if you like, it's a language that was developed in the 60s or 50s and 60s by Jose Oresti from Spain and um, it lists all the figures that you can or you might be able to buy in aerobatics and they each have a K factor, a difficulty factor, a bit like diving. Different dives have different difficulty factors. And there's a mathematical method of working out what the difficulty factor is for each figure. And when you combine figures, you add the K factors together. So if you put a full roll on a vertical line up, you add the K factors of the vertical line up and the full roll to come to the overall K factor for the combination figure. And then a sequence is made up of a series of figures that involve all the basic elements of looping and rolling, etc. And that gives you an overall K factor for the sequence, a difficulty factor for the sequence. And then on top of that, there's a positioning score as well. And when you fly, um, you're meant to fly all your lines either perfectly horizontal or vertical or 45 degrees. And uh, any variation by five degrees, you get a one-point deduction. Um, this back a little, the judges score each figure in your sequence out of 10. So you start off with a 10, and then if you start fouling things up, they deduct points. And so you might end up with 8 or 7 or 6.5 or 3 or 0 if you make enough mistakes in each figure. And then the scores for each figure in your sequence are added together. Um, the difficulty factors or the, the scores are multiplied by the difficulty factor. That number, those numbers are added together, and the average overall with your positioning is your overall score for the sequence. So it's relatively simple maths, but there's a bit involved in arriving at the score, and that doesn't make it a good spectator sport because there's always a delay between the flight and when you actually see the score. When the guys are coming in to start uh, working out a performance and, and various routines, you mentioned looping and rolling, but uh, you know what other basic elements are there that they have to uh, perform? And moving on from that, I mean, how much license do they have to uh, do their own sort of thing? The competition, like the World Championships, is made up of four flights in the uh, in the classic or technical part of the competition, and the first is a qualifying flight. And the qualifying sequence is set annually by SEVA in Europe. And everyone around the world flies the Q flight through the year and practices that. 
and when they come to the world championships, you fly it. And you've, you're meant to, you've got to score 60% or you might get cut from the program and you won't go on. Uh, then there's the free, which is uh, your own design sequence. And again, it, it has to be designed to meet certain criteria, but you're basically free to design your own sequence, fly it and practice it as much as you like. And when you go to a competition, you go out there and try and fly that as well as you can, and you've got a good chance of doing that. Then the last two flights in the competition are the unknowns, and they're just like they sound. You don't get a, an opportunity to practice these. You get these sequences given to you the day before, and you can't go up and practice it. You've just got to practice, rehearse it on the ground, memorize it, plan it, and then you've got 15 minutes um, from takeoff to get into the box, fly the sequence, and, and land and you don't get a chance to practice. Um, and so there's two unknown flights at the end, and they're the ones that really make or break in the competition. They're the ones you've got to really perform in if you're going to have a chance of getting a medal. The development of the sequences is a bit hard to describe probably on this program, um, but basically uh, the top 10 pilots or teams submit a figure each, and then you, you assemble a sequence, a flyable sequence out of those 10 figures, plus up to four link, simple linking figures, and, and then those sequences, you can pick one of those to fly in the competition, but you don't get to practice it. Aerobatics, again, is a bit odd in that there's no warm-up pool, there's no warm-up court. You can't go out to the nets that morning and have a bit of a, get your eye in before you go out in the middle of the SCG. Um, yeah. Once the competition starts, you, you don't get to fly. The only time you get to fly is when you're going up to fly and be judged in the box. Richard Wiltshire and uh, Paul Andronicu, the two Australians that went over there, uh, are names that are perhaps uh, pretty well known in the Australian uh, aviation scene. But uh, for those people who are not familiar with them, can you tell us a bit about those guys and uh, how they uh, came to be uh, going over to represent Australia? Well, both have been competing in Australia for since the 90s. Richard Zalamy, working for Qantas, uh, he's also just done his ATPL, and so now he's looking for an airline job. But, you know, he's worked through... His trade, uh, he's, he's run his own Lamy shop, he's done bank running to build hours, he's done everything just uh, coming through the, the GA scene, um, and I think he's got a couple of thousand or two and a half thousand hours now, and he's been competing since um, the late 90s. I think he started competing in a tipsy nipper, uh, which is a peculiar little aeroplane, but was aerobatic, and then he went on to a Pitts um, S1C, and uh, then he, he was building a one design, a DR-107, and he flew that, and he was um, Australian champion in that three times. And at the moment, he's putting together an MXS kit, and he hopes to have that flying soon, and he'll be competing in it. Paul Andronic, who's from Melbourne, he's uh, a small businessman, he's got a few fuel stations. He's uh, flew in a laser in the, um, in the 90s fairly regularly and fairly well, and then sort of went away from the sport for a bit. And he um, came back into competition the last few years. He, he bought an extra 300S, and uh, that was what the Richard and Paul were practicing in before they went overseas, and that's the sort of aircraft they hired for, for the World Championships. So they're both, you know, GA firmly in the GA background area. Now, that's an interesting point you bring up there, Grant, about them hiring aircraft across there in uh, in Europe. Um, they weren't able to uh, uh, take Australian aircraft. I guess that's a factor of the amount of money it would have uh, cost them to get their aircraft over there. So I guess that would have been uh, a challenge for them to uh, get used to a different aircraft once they were there. Yes, it's a, it's a problem we face um, if you don't live in Europe or you don't live near where the competition's held. Um, the South Africans have the same issue. The Americans have the same issue. Um, so they, yes, it's difficult. You can't. It's it's a lot of money to take your own aeroplane, 
And then if you do take it and ship it, you're looking at seven or eight weeks without it. So you can't practice for that period before you go as well. So there's lots of problems there that make it hard for, for us and others to compete on an equal footing in Europe. I understand that um, Paul and Richard trained on Paul's extra 300 and then, as you said, they flew the extra, uh, rented extra 300. Was there much difference between the rented aircraft and Paul's and, and did that factor into the performance at all? Yeah, uh, there was, was quite a difference and it would have affected how they performed for sure. The, the rented extra just didn't had the four blade prop had different spades on the ailerons and um, had a different feel to it and it didn't seem to you know go as hard was the term used um, as Paul's and so they had to cope with what they thought was a lesser performing aeroplane and adjust to that and heavier ailerons but uh, you know it's a bit like blaming your tools you sort of can't put too much emphasis on it really you just got to get on with the job um the, the an american flew the same airplane and, and did quite well but then his airplane at home was an extra 300l so he probably thought he was getting into a, a rocket ship when he jumped in the 300s whereas paul and richard thought it was a bit of a backward step compared to what they they were used to yeah and tell us a little bit in terms of performance about the speeds the aircraft fly around in the in the aerobatic sequences and, and the g they pull because it's significant especially at that level isn't it yes it's very extreme uh it's an extreme sport you look from the ground and you tend to get a bit blase once the fifth or sixth or tenth pilot's gone up and flown this horror sequence and you forget what it's like but they can fly down to you know 330 feet above ground um you're doing you know, 350, possibly 400 kilometres per hour at the start of the sequence. The roll rates in these modern aircraft, you know, around the 400 degrees per second, and you're pulling, you know, plus 10, minus 7 would be fairly typical, and some people would exceed that. So it's a it's a hard sport. That's an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of G. Well, it is, it is, and it's not something you do lightly, and it's not something you can do without practice and, and acclimatisation. It takes a lot out of you. And do they just fly into, when they start their sequence, I suppose they want to be going as fast as possible. Do they just adjust the power throughout the sequence or is it full fine on the prop the whole way around? Yeah, well, certainly in the 300S, it was firewalled the whole time apart from when they need to slow down for a spin. Um, but you could certainly see the, some of the other aircraft or the higher performing aircraft, they were on and off the throttle through the sequences. Um, something, yeah, the top competitors do a lot is manage their line length like when they do vertical if there's a wind blowing or for positioning, they don't want to draw a super long line, they'll reduce power, which sounds crazy to a lot of people who are flying pitches and other things, um, to to reduce the length of the line because if you're going up for three seconds and down for three seconds, in that six seconds you can cross two-thirds of the box if there's a strong wind blowing. And so they do get on and off the power quite a bit to manage their line length. One of the things that, that interests me about this sort of sport now, I guess when you're up there, you're on your own and, um, you know, it's, it's it's very much a solo performance. However, I would imagine there's a lot of uh, mentoring by other pilots that are interested in the field. Do they take a lot of advice from other competitors, people that they're familiar with, and uh, do they have much of a support crew when they're there? Well, I went across this time, but um, I wasn't coaching them and the guys didn't have a coach, which I think is um, something we need to correct in the future. You do need mentors, you do need coaches at this highest level. It's like any sport at the elite level, you do need um, the right preparation and the right people. And um, yeah, the single biggest improvement we could make uh, would be to to get a coach or get access to high quality coaching for our competitors. I mean, one of the names that comes to mind would be like Chris Baru is uh, well known in this country for his exploits in this field. I mean, mm-hmm. is, is he somebody who, or somebody of that caliber would be uh, what you'd be looking for? Well, we could certainly, uh, I haven't spoken to Chris, but we could certainly probably uh, get some very useful information out of him. 
However, again, he competed internationally and, and with reasonable success, but that was 25 or 30 years ago. So um, we probably, these days, we really need to go to Europe or Russia, yeah, Russia or someone on get to try and engage a, um, you know, someone who's competed at the highest level and uh, and is able to transfer that knowledge, you know, to our pilots, you know, someone with reasonable English, someone who's willing to travel and come down under, and someone with the the latest knowledge on 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 what's what's required to get the best scores out of the judges, because you know, judging judging does vary. Unfortunately, internationally, a little bit. Interesting point you're making there, Grant, about the Russians. It seems the obvious thing would be the Americans would dominate the scene. They've got the biggest GA industry in the world. They've got enormous amounts of uh, resources and money floating around the United States. But this year, and historically, it's the Russians and the French that seem to be cleaning up at these aerobatic competitions year in, year out. Is there some particular reason for that? I think um, it's the the culture in those countries and uh, uh, some of the other European countries, they, they have that. Uh, this aero club culture involves aerobatics from the very beginning. Uh, you look at the French, you know, where they've got the aero clubs and they've got Cap 10s and CR100s and 120s, like a lot of their basic club aircraft are aerobatic. And that just, I, I don't know the details, but that, that is just a, a, a function of, of learning to fly there is doing some aerobatics. Their team is supported by the state. The Army Air has a squadron equipped with um, extras and you know that's also got their jet display team in that squadron so that's their PR arm of the Air Force and part of their job is to go to air shows around France and Europe display the aircraft and show what a French Air Force pilot can do so it's a recruiting tool but besides that they go to international competitions and generally they they do very well there's got civilians on their team as well but they all train together uh, through the year and they have coaching and critique and they seem to maintain the standard I just think it's it's more imbued in them from the beginning um, rather than being a, a niche out there crazy bunch of guys with too much money it's interesting that you talk about uh, using the French as an example there. I noticed that former Red Bull Air Race pilot Nicholas Ivanov is uh, figuring very highly in the rankings there. Can you tell us the results uh, overall? Uh, who won the event? Overall, um, Mikhail Mamostov from Russia was the uh, male winner. Olivia Mazarel, uh, French civilian, was second. And Oleg Spolyansky from Russia, third. And then the first female competitor was uh, Svetlana Kapanina from Russia, who's quite well known and has been competing for years. Fifth, you could sort of say, or four and a half, is Castor Fantober. He's from Spain, but he was competing horse can cause or as an independent. And then um, two more Frenchmen, Alexander Le Bollinger and Nicholas Ivanov. And then USA, France, Great Britain. So, you know, the top 10 spots were dominated by France and Russia and the two Americans. And uh, our two guys, unfortunately, uh, didn't make the cut. But uh, as you say, this is very much a, a learning experience this time, and uh, they're going to bring a lot of uh, knowledge back to uh, work with for the next time around. Yeah, certainly. Um, they saw a lot, and you know, I saw a lot. And I think there's a lot of things we can do now to better prepare ourselves in future. They they flew well, you know, with given the conditions and the, and the, the work up they had. They didn't get to fly the second unknown because they enforced the 25% cut, and being in the bottom of the field, um, we didn't get to do that. But just seeing the flying and meeting the people, I think, you know, we'll be better prepared next time with more contacts with, um, you know, for hiring aircraft and, you know, contacts also to go out and, and source a, a coach. Was it a friendly uh, atmosphere? Yeah, it was It was friendly. I found um, everyone there was was helpful and will, willing to have a chat. 
it's the normal competitive scene though that we have here that you don't want to go and talk to someone 10 minutes before they have to get in the aeroplane. So people do get tense and nervous and um, you know their preparation before they strap in is very important. So you certainly leave people alone during that period. But outside of that, everyone was willing to have a talk and they were quite interested to talk to the Aussies and find out what's going on down here and um, you know whether we plan to go back and you know, a lot of people said it's great to see you here because we just haven't seen you for so long. And the South Africans were the same. You know, they hadn't been there for 11 years. So for the sport as a whole, I think they all saw it as a good thing. Um, we've just got to maintain that. Any sort of undertaking like this, uh, Grant, is obviously very expensive. Uh, did you have much in the way of sponsorship? No, no. We had about three or $400 in donations. And otherwise, the guys funded it out of their pocket. The aerobatic club paid the entry fees for the guys. So no, we didn't have any sponsorship and uh, that's partly because it's just a very difficult climate and it's a difficult sport to get sponsorship for and the timeline before we went didn't really allow us to pursue it to any great degree. So if there's anyone out there who are interested in sponsoring, Paul's willing to repaint his aeroplane to their corporate colours? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can do that. Um, <laughs> we'd be very interested to hear from anyone who wants to get involved in, in the sport. I mean, we're looking as a club to send people overseas internationally over the next few years and try and um, improve the standard here and, and you know get towards you know the top half or the top third of the field overseas would be great. So we're going to have that international exposure. Um, we're going to keep trying to increase the activity level domestically as well. In Australian competitions specifically, do we get many non-flyers turning up and spectating or volunteering and helping out, perhaps people who are enthusiastic about it but maybe don't have the funds or the, the time to put into being a competitor? We do have a few. Um, we'd like to attract more, and uh, but most non-flyers we get at competitions are, are family or friends of those flying and they generally pitch in and help out which is great but you know we, we welcome anyone in the club I mean you can join uh, most chapters and uh, as a non-fly member if you want to and just be involved and you know we, we get send you the newsletters you stay in touch with what's going on anyone can become a judge or or, or help out of the competition once they're a member and um, it's quite an interesting pastime I suppose again it's not mainstream but if you're into aviation and, and uh, performance aircraft, well, you probably can't get anything better. And, of course, uh, Grant, if they want to uh, have a look at what you're doing, I'll give the website out now and we'll do it at the end of the interview as well. It's uh, aerobaticsaustralia.com.au. Yep, we're, we're working on that at the moment, but there's a bit of good information there and there's links to the blog, which has got a fair bit of information in it as well. Well, Grant, that's uh, really interesting stuff, mate. I just wonder, uh, you're the president of, of the Australian Aerobatic Club, and my research tells me that you've spent some time in the Royal Australian Air Force, so I guess you obviously went through a, a, a very different uh, ab initio training regime to what uh, most GA pilots would uh, would do. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I guess it does vary a little bit. I, so I haven't been through the GA system completely, but yes, it's been, it was the typical military training. I went through at 1FTS when it was still at Point Cook on the CD4s, and that initial 60-odd hours was all the normal stuff. Um, plus yeah, your aerobatics and a little bit of formation, a little bit of instrument flying, and then um, completed and got my wings over at Pierce on the Mackie with more aerobatics and low nav and formation and instrument flying. So, uh, you know, if doing aerobatics, yes, has always been part of flying. That's always been part of the, the job. Yep. And then whether the sky is up there or down there, it, it sort of 
doesn't make a lot of difference. So, I mean, that's that's one of the, uh, I, I would assume, one of the main differences, though, is that you would get up and do um, you know, sort of more high-performance flight a lot earlier on than, uh, than someone coming through the civilian training system. In fact, really, civilian pilots are going through the, the basic training don't do aerobatics uh, really at all, apart from, you know, stalling, really. I mean, that's about as, as challenging as it gets most of the time. Mm. What are your thoughts on that sort of um, training regime? Do you think uh, perhaps aerobatics should feature more heavily in uh, ab initio training? Uh, look, my personal thought is it should. Um, obviously, there's a lot of experts and other people out there who are more highly qualified than I who believe otherwise. Um, but, yeah, to my view, I, I think it should be a core part of training and they, I, you know, you often read the accident statistics and out of, coming out of the US for many years, and they always harped on about the stall spin on finals or turning base and that sort of stuff. And I think a lot of that could be ameliorated if people had better aerobatic training, because the you know the core things you learn there about stall stick position and um, and correcting unusual attitudes would apply straight back to preventing some of those accidents, I believe. Uh, you know, and not having aerobatics in the RAOs syllabus or not permitting them on those types of aircraft, again, is really, I think, setting us up for more failure in the future. It seems that when I was learning to fly, there was no aerobatics at all in any of the syllabus, of course, as Steve touched on, just only in relation to perhaps stalling and steep turns. And I was a bit apprehensive about it, but I wonder if if it was introduced earlier and became a normal part of flying, that people would be less apprehensive about it because it would be just part of the course with learning to fly uh, vis-a-vis your military experience. Yeah, well, I think so. I mean, you see some people who fly and any more than the rate one turn is is time to panic, and that might be exaggerating, but... um I think, yeah, it's just about being a total pilot, I suppose. And I think the more, the better your knowledge, whether it's of systems or procedures or navigation or weather, you know, the mechanics of your aircraft or or the handling of your aircraft at all points the envelope. Um, it's all going to make you a safer and better pilot. I mean, there's still a nut behind the wheel and decision-making is 90% of the solution. But, you know, when you get into that corner that you don't want to be at, Every little bit helps, and and I think aerobatics is a, should be just a core part of flying. People should know what to do well, you know, th- in different situations. I think I tend to agree with you, and I, I guess the parallel for that is that um, you know in the ab initio training, you you do have a very minor introduction to um, basic instrument flying, with the idea that if you are silly enough to fly yourself into IMC, you can at least turn yourself around and fly yourself back out of it. Um, I guess this is the same sort of thing. I remember when I did my instrument rating. 20 years ago when I got the rating the instructor handed me the ticket shook my hand and said now you've really learned to fly yeah well you feel you've accomplished something uh, um, I mean a lot of schools offer emergency maneuver training and upset recovery training and a lot of those same schools teach aerobatics but um, the emergency maneuver training upset training is a more saleable product probably than an aerobatics endorsement and it's, it has its use but um, I like to think it's just a thinly disguised reason to do some aerobatics. One of my friends is learning to fly at Red Baron at uh, Bankstown Airport, and I ran into him yesterday, and he did his first training area solo, so he probably got, I don't know, 15 hours total time. And I said, oh, what would you do in the training area solo? And he said, oh, I went out to the training area, did a couple of loops, a couple of aileron rolls, and then came back. And that was part of the course because all through his ab initio, uh, you know, when he got to turning lesson, the turning lesson was, you know, turn left, turn right, roll left, roll right do an aileron roll and it was just par for the course and he doesn't know any different he doesn't realize that in the rest of the world people don't do that with ab initio and it's par for the course for him and he'll graduate as a as a ppl with an aerobatic rating and just be 
bread and butter for him. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great way to learn. It always comes down to cost, though, I suppose, and um, it all adds to the the length of the training, I suppose, until you get your basic ticket. But you know, I still think it's a very important thing if you're really concerned about reducing accidents. Uh, um, oh, that would be one of the first things I put back in the syllabus, aerobatics. Well, Grant, it's been a fascinating chat. I really appreciate you uh, spending the time this morning to uh, bring us up to speed on uh, the way the guys went there at the uh, World Aerobatic Championships. Grant Piper is the president of uh, the Australian Aerobatic Club. You can check them out at aerobaticsaustralia.com.au. And uh, Grant, is there any other online presence you can think of if someone wanted to uh, email you? Yeah, um, president at aerobaticsaustralia.com.au will find me. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Grant, thanks very much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Grant. Bye for now. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com To get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plane crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com G'day mates, Leo Laporte from This Week in Tech with my bad fake Australian accent saying I like the playing crazy down under podcast, right? Right. Well, there we go. And thanks to Grant Piper for uh, spending some of his morning there. Anthony, I think he was pretty keen to get back out to his farm and tend to his sheep. Uh, we were, uh, we could have gone a lot longer if uh, time had been more favourable for us. Yeah, Grant, so uh, he's a busy man. He's, he runs a pretty busy farm there. And with that and his aeroplane obsession, he's always running around doing lots of things. A couple of aspects that uh, came out of that discussion that uh, perhaps might need a little bit more uh, explanation to do with the uh, the scoring system. Okay. Um, so in competition aerobatics, as Grant was talking about, you fly figures and a figure is just a fancy competition jargon for a manoeuvre um, and a figure might be a loop as a figure or a, um, a cube and eight as a figure and a figure can consist of as I think Grant was talking about um, combination so it might be a, a loop with a snapper roll at the top of the loop and the judges will say each figure starts at a 10 and then as you make mistakes around the figure they'll take half a point or a point off depending on what the mistake is and if the mistake is serious enough they can give you a zero and you get nothing for that figure it's sort of like death by a thousand cuts if you make a few little mistakes and things like that it is um, um, what a lot of the judges do, and it's a technique I got taught, was um, each figure's worth 10 points. So as a pilot starts the figure, you hold out in front of you, you hold out your hands with 10 fingers out, and then as he makes mistakes, you just keep dropping fingers. And then how many fingers you got on your hand at the end, that's how many points he gets. And I guess you've got to have good dexterity. You can do half points as well, I suppose. But um, yeah, and that's exactly how it goes. And, and the theory is, is that the figure has to look right from the judge irrespective of how it appears in the cockpit or how it actually appears. So if a pilot can say fly, the loop has to be round, has to look round from the ground, um, which will mean a changing G all the way around. And in fact, over the top of the loop, he'll be doing negative G. We hang in his straps to make it look round. But he has to also account for wind. So if there's a, if there's a, say if he's doing a, a loop into wind and the crosswind, sorry, the headwind is strong enough, it's going to make the loop look like an egg on its side, like an oval shape. So he's got to account for that. Now that's beyond the scope of what I do because I'm not that good. But the guys who fly at the, at the level that Grant's talking about, they, those guys do that. Oh yeah, it's it's great uh, watching. Like I've watched Andrew 
fly the yak from the ground a few times and been up with them flying uh, a routine and things like that when during just having fun and uh, yeah making allowance for the wind is a big thing you can have crosswinds headwinds tailwinds and as you said they they throw your lines off and as Grant was saying during the um, the chat you've you've got the situation where now you've got to you know either pull back your throttle and and dive it differently to what you might do otherwise if there was no wind. Yeah, and the thing about he was alluding to these high performance aeroplanes is something at the top end like an MX or a uh, high powered Sequoias. When those guys pull verticals, there is a top limit to how high they can go before they start losing points. And also, the longer you spend on the vertical, the more time you ha- you get to judge to pick up on er- any errors you're making. So you want to show him that you're flying a perfect vertical line, so you're at 90 degrees to the ground, but not so long that he can see if you start making mistakes. So the longer you expose yourself to the judge of, of flying that vertical line, the more he's going to see any mistakes you make. And so I guess what Grant was saying was uh, that those aeroplanes are so powerful, they can fly vertically for a long time, but that's not necessarily what you want. So that's that's a real skill. I and mean, those guys are changing the power settings to adjust the vertical lines up and down. That's that's t- That takes a lot of training, a lot of practice, and a lot of, uh, a lot of experience to do that. Oh, yeah. And the other thing that interests me, um, Anthony, is uh, the concept of the box when it comes to aerobatics. Can you explain that for our listeners? The box is uh, the area which the competitors have to constrain themselves. And if they go outside the box, they get deducted points. And it's a kilometer by a kilometer area over the ground. And in unlimited, it's the bottom limit is 100 meters because it's a, uh, a European standard which is 328 feet and the top is 3,000 feet. So if you go outside that box, that imaginary box in the sky, you lose points. At very advanced levels, they use telemetry data and I don't know how they do it. I think they use some sort of transponder system to pick you outside the box. Um, at sort of local levels here, we just put judges on each corner and if you fly behind the judge's head, you've gone outside the box. In terms of vertical, um, top end of the box isn't enforced locally, once again, as severely because it's very hard to tell if someone's gone high and it's not really a safety issue. Occasionally, guys get pinged for going high. Hard to tell if an airplane's at 3,000 feet or 3,500 feet from the ground, but going low is a real no-no. It's culturally and regularly Literally discouraged and in fact it's, it's illegal and if you go low you can get deducted severely or even disqualified and that's because it's a safety issue and it's quite interesting something I, I didn't realize until I went and did my first competition is before each level so there's five levels of competition and the high the grades you are you low, lower you're allowed to fly before each different level of pilot or class of competitor flies, the first competitor has to go and mark the box. So he takes off and he'll fly the extremities of the box. And each time he goes over one of the extremities, he, he drops his wing so the judges can see where the extremities are from the judging where they're sitting. And then he'll fly that and he flies those extremities at the lower limit of the box. So the so the judges can get a, get their eye in and see where the airplane will be if he's at the bottom end of the box. And it's, it sounds pretty big, you know, like, wow, a kilometer. But then when you actually think about it, it's pretty easy to go out outside that especially with the wind um mm. they do put box markers on the ground bright orange or yellow or white box markers they mark the corners and the, and the center of the box but uh yeah, it's very easy to get disori- disorientation is a big thing in aerobatic competitions um mm. you know like they'll i think it might be a one and a quarter turn spin and um you're going to be flying along one, one axis of the box and then you're going to come out flying across another axis of the box and any figure that's flowing in the wrong direction is zero so um orientation is a big deal and it's very easy to get disorientated i know because i've done it <laughs> Plenty of times. Mate, I've, I've been disorientated doing arrows just as a passenger, let alone trying to fly the damn things. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's one of the challenges. That's what makes aerobatics and competition aerobatics so much fun and, and so great. I mean, it doesn't matter how much experience you have and how good you get. Um, there's always something to improve and something to do better at. And that's that's what we're all after, And really, is how can we improve? How can each flight be done better than, than the previous one? 
in anything we fly, let alone doing aerobatic. Yeah, for sure. And, that, and, that's, and that's one of the great things about flying is, uh, you know, I reckon anyway, is, um, you know, it's, it's always a challenge. You never, uh, just when you think you've got it stunned, that's when you're going to have a, have a mishap. Yeah. I certainly know, certainly know landings. That's my situation with landing. But now I think I've got it all sorted out and I can land this airplane really nicely. It bites me. <laughs> Any landing you walk away from is a good one, eh, hey, Grant? Yeah. And if you can use the plane again afterwards, it obviously wasn't me flying it. That's right. Hey, I think one other, one other uh, interesting thing that came out of that discussion was that he was saying there that the aircraft they were using, uh, one of the differences it had is that uh, I think it was a three-bladed bladed prop compared to a two-bladed prop or was it a three compared to a four? Yeah. You know, I, I, and there's, a, there's often a discussion, isn't there, amongst uh, you know pilots about which is better, a two-bladed prop Cessna or perhaps one with a three-bladed prop. But what's your view on that? Why, why do you think that would have made such a difference to the way uh, the aircraft performed? Oh, look, I think um, in, in the airplane they're flying, they're normally three-bladed propellers, the um, extra 300. I believe that in Europe they're very sensitive to noise. And, of course, the bigger the propeller, the more noise it makes because the faster the tips the propeller is spinning around. So they often go to more you know, four-bladed props to reduce the propeller diameter. So I think that's why they had they had four, but I'm sure if they had a choice, they would have stuck with a three-bladed prop. Doesn't the extra blades also give you a chance to get more power, more bite out of the engine? I think there's a, um, a balance between um, blade diameter, blade thickness, aspect ratio, and number of blades. I mean, look at, say, uh, my airplane, my little pits has a three-blade prop on it, and, um, you know, partially because I think it looks cool, but also because uh, it's um, it's just what I went with because I thought that was a good compromise. But look at big airplanes like, say, a Dash 8 or... You know, big military turboprops. I think they've got like five blades on some of those. Oh, eight. Some of them eight blades. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Like the um, CODs, the, the Greyhounds and CODs delivering out to carriers. I got some photos of them at uh, Oshkosh and it's, it's like, you know, my God, it's just a huge disc. <laughs> it's yeah. Blades everywhere. And so I guess the, the I guess the reason that is is if they had um, less blades, they'd have to increase the blade diameter to be able to absorb the horsepower. And if the blade diameter gets too big, two things happen. Firstly, it might hit the ground or the airframe, or probably more to the point, the blades become they get close to supersonic, and anything above close to or above supersonic, the um, the drag rise is huge, and therefore the um, the blade loses all, all sorts of efficiency. Well, I mean, you look at the uh, the well, listen to the blades on the prop of the Harvard, the T6, and those prop tips are breaking the sound barrier. That's why at full full throttle, they're, they're really noisy buggers taking off. Yeah, uh, they sound cool. Oh, yeah. I grew up on an airbase, so yeah, you heard them all the time. And then you've got those P3 Orions, and look at the size of the, the paddle-bladed props they've got on those. It's like, you know, they're massive. Now they're big. Uh, once again, you've got to have the big big cord, big um, big propellers, and lots of them to absorb all that horsepower. Yeah, well, apparently the uh, I'm hearing that the, the most efficient propeller you can get has one blade and a counterweight. Because yeah, I've heard that, but I'm not sure about that. I'd be, um, even with if, even if all the science and all the physics were uh, were all in order and it all made perfect sense, I think I'd have a lot of trouble trying to resolve getting in and flying an airplane with only one, one bladed prop. Yeah. yeah, you don't see many of them around, do you? <laughs> well, I mean, let's face it, if it was that good, wouldn't Bert Rutan have used it by now? Well, that's a very good point. The guy I bought my propeller from... Um, guy called Craig Caddo, he's he designs a lot of propellers for Reno Air Races and he's been doing it for 30 years. And um, one thing he said to me when I was talking to him about, oh, should I get the two blade or the three blade and which diameter and which pitch setting? And he said to me, Anthony, there's a lot of hangar talk. 
amongst pilots about which propeller to get. Trust me, I'll build the right one for you. Pretty much, in other words, stop asking questions. Just trust me on this, you know. <laughs> and I think that's one of those things. It's like I think that uh, there's a lot of furfies out there about propellers, as there is about a lot of aviation and um, and uh, a lot of the theories that go around about you know what's the best propeller is uh, often just just that. It's just theory. A lot of guys get paid a lot of money and spend a lot of time figuring out which was the right one for their uh, application. It's it's just one more thing that you can have a good excuse to sit around, drink beer, and argue about. Absolutely, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. Well, especially when the weather's like it is at the moment. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I did get to fire the pits today, though. I snuck in some circuits, so it wasn't that bad up here. Jealous. All right. I tell you what, this has been just a fascinating uh, conversation, guys, and we could go on for ages. In fact, you know, Grant, this has been one of the more traditional hangar flying types of shows we've done in a long time. I reckon. Yeah, it's been great. I'm really enjoying it. Um, I mean, I I can't wait to finish licenses and go do aerobatics myself. But for now, I just get to OPA other people's airplanes. <laughs> and go fly aerobatics with them. So yeah, any excuse to get up and throw my head around the world. Well, mate, uh, before we move on into uh, listener mail and shout-outs, uh, Grant, uh, let's talk balloons just for a minute. Now, of course, it's uh, the Australian Football League uh, grand final week uh, as we record this, and uh, I believe that uh, with the company you work for, Picture This Ballooning, you've been out and uh, putting some pretty interesting balloons up and about over the last week or so. Oh, uh, well, we took the footy out. Uh, we have a, a balloon shaped like a giant football, and, uh, we're doing some work with Energy Watch, uh, a company that uh, tries to save your money by uh, analyzing your energy bills and suggesting maybe you should go with a different provider, things like that. And uh, they've been doing a lot of advertising and so they bought some banners and we whacked them on the balloon and flew it over the MCG, the home of um, Australian Rules Footy. Uh, so we've got some amazing photos that went up online. If you uh, go to facebook.com slash picture this ballooning, uh, that'll take you to our page and uh, you'll go back through the history and you'll see a few of those photos. Well, of course, uh, the AFL uh, has no meaning in this podcast, seeing as the poor old uh, Hawks got uh, done by three points, robbed, in fact, by those stinking horrible Collingwood players the yeah, week before. Whatever. So who cares? Mate, that's what I say all the time. In fact, it's been quite a disgusting thing for me, the fact that my uh, love of aviation and ballooning is getting dragged into the muck of AFL. Um, the, we also fly the Carlton Draft pot of beer balloon, and we had that uh, inside Etihad Stadium just recently. In fact, also out in the car park at one point at Channel 9 Studios in the Docklands. Uh, a complete miracle. The winds, normally the Docklands is a real wind tunnel. It totally dropped off. We are able to stick it up, and uh, we were on the footy show for a couple of nights. You know, it's interesting, Grant, that you, you talk about the weather, um, and, and we're moving into spring here in Melbourne traditionally a very, very uh, windy time of year. Um, I guess that's uh, this time of year that would sort of hamper operations for uh, hot air balloons. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally, mate. The, this last season has been uh, not our favourite. Um, the breaking of the drought late last year and since then, the, the weather's just been all over the place, mate. And uh, we've probably flown about 35 to 37% of the times we've tried. Normally, we'd have flown about 42% of the times we've tried. Because usually, we get about 120, 130 days a year that we can fly over the city. But yeah, it's it's been pretty tight. All right, interesting stuff. I'll tell you what, uh, Grant, uh, we've still got that balloon ride for my daughter uh, coming up, so uh, remind yeah. me once again to book that, would you? Definitely. We'll uh, we'll make sure she has a great flight. And uh, unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to get out and do some more of my own flying. I was supposed to go up to uh, hang out in New South Wales and go flying with a bunch of the guys and uh, wound up because of all this AFL-related stuff. I've had to stay here to, you know, as the project manager and office manager and looking after all that kind of stuff as well as uh, coordinating what we're doing uh, with extra pilots and more capacity and who's going where and which balloons being taken you know, flying these special shapes around we've got the liberty house we've got uh, nudie we've got all sorts of stuff going on so uh, yeah i missed out on going up and spending a week flying in new south wales which was a little upsetting but that's life 
Oh, well, that's all right, Grant. I've got plenty of work here on the podcast to keep you busy. Dang. Well, mate, uh, speaking of hanging out, I think there's somebody hanging out of my front door right now. We've got the postman. Oh, it's that late night postie. Poor bloke, he'd be drenched out there at the moment. It's pouring rain. Does he have his water wings on? <laughs> yeah, I hope he does. He can float off down the street. Plain crazy down under at gmail.com is the email address, folks. Uh, feel free to contact us, keep us honest, and uh, send in all sorts of suggestions for stories. Uh, we really appreciate it when you do that. And uh, in response to our uh, Kiwi Desk episode a couple of uh, months back now with uh, Dan Morris, you know, we're always uh, uh, putting in uh, requests for people to send us ideas for more uh, Kiwi stories uh, because we, we really do uh, want to push that angle of the show a lot. And uh, once such person who's uh, been kind enough to write in from New Zealand is uh, Ian Allen and he's uh, sent in a uh, heap of suggestions for us which we really appreciate Ian just says uh, hi guys enjoying your show he says he's a 33 year old 777 pilot for Air New Zealand uh, just finishing flying the uh, 747 400 uh, as well so uh, I tell you what uh, you know he's, he's doing some interesting airline flying of his, of his own Anthony but um, yeah, he's, he's sent in a lot of uh, really really interesting uh, suggestions here for um, some stories that we might chase up and of course uh, by us meaning we might chase that means we just forwarded it straight on to Dan Morris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I'm looking for any excuse to get over to New Zealand and I'd really love to go and see the uh, the mosquitoes being restored. Uh, my contacts over there have been sending me photos and links to some of the chat boards and things like that and there's some amazing stuff going on. Uh, also, the suggestions for the chief flight engineer may very well turn around and know the uh, one of my contacts over there who's an ex uh, and New Zealand flight engineer as well. So all good stuff, mate. Warbirds over Wanaka. Great, great excuse to get oh, to New Zealand. Hanging for it. Hanging for it. Yeah, we should do that next year, Grant. In fact, uh, we, we did actually um, bump into the people that run Warbirds over Wanaka uh, while we were at Avalon. In fact, they were actually parked right next to us in the car park and I was <laughs> chatting to them one evening and they did uh, give us an open invite to come on over, but uh, we might just have to raise a bit more sponsorship, I think. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, donate button is open and the uh, the efforts to find new sponsors are always on the go. We also got an email here from uh, Errol Cavett. Uh, who was telling us about a uh, potential uh, for a, uh, a New Zealand-based aviation podcast. Uh, Grant, you mentioned NZAF Pro Boards, which is a discussion forum for all things Kiwi aviation. And it uh, looks like Dave Homewood, who runs that, is uh, looking, to, looking to do a, a Kiwi-based aviation podcast, which would be fantastic. And uh, Dave, if you're listening, I've actually sent you an email to this uh, to this effect. Um, we always like to help other people uh, with their podcasting. So if you need any help with that, mate, certainly drop us a line. We'd be only too happy to give you the benefit of our wisdom, such as it is. Yeah. Don't do this. Don't do that. You'll be fine. Yeah, don't yeah. do what we did. <laughs> no, that'll be great. I can't wait. Uh, look, you know, always great to have uh, more podcasts coming out with great content because the ones who really benefit are the listeners uh it's great to be recording all this information for posterity keeping it around for people to to listen to in the future that's a it's a major driver for us to keep going with this is is building that awareness so come on guys let's get a kiwi uh, aviation podcast out that would be awesome Absolutely. Well, I think we'll leave it there. There's a lot of uh, interaction going on on our Facebook page. And uh, don't forget, you can also hop over to our forum there on uh, downwind.com.au. I think uh, participation in that forum has just dropped off a little bit of late. So we'd uh, we'd certainly like to reinvigorate that. But uh, we are getting a lot of uh, traffic these days through our Facebook page. In fact, I think uh, between that and Twitter grant, it's uh, kind of taking over as the place where we do most of our interaction with with our listeners. And in fact, I actually noticed uh, that Baz, even though Baz is currently over there in uh, the Netherlands, uh, is uh, dropping in some... uh, 
almost controversial comments. So uh, even even Baz is getting in on the act. Baz controversial? A Dutchman? Never. 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 Must be. A, must be another Baz. Anyway, I didn't give him permission to uh, run off there to the Netherlands. What's the big idea? I thought he had editing to do for us. Ah, well, you know, maybe he just needed to get away from the keyboard. I'll tell you what, Chef, is you're in trouble when you get back here. <laughs> Let's move on to shout-outs. Uh, Anthony, I think you've got one. Would you like to kick it off? Yeah, I've got two, actually. Um, firstly, uh, to uh, my good friend Phil Unicum up at Action Aerobatics. He's uh, had an accident and is recovering nicely, and he's going to be back to full flying status soon. So I wish him all the best and hope to see him up in the air very soon. And also to uh, Gaz and Jeff and the boys out at Combat Dragon at Bankstown. They've um, been really helped looking after me with my pits and giving me a hand with some of the maintenance and um, and helping me out there. And they're great blokes, and uh, they also run the adventure flights in their A37 Dragonfly. So if you're interested in, in that sort of stuff, I highly recommend it. I've watched the A30 sevens go off and they have a real high nose up attitude on takeoff so they don't exceed the gear speed it's uh, it's pretty scary watching them go up looks awesome it looks like a quite a benign airplane when you're looking at it from the outside but the numbers the way it flies being a twin engine aircraft for the power to weight ratio i think gary was saying that uh at their normal weights they fly around it it's got a greater than one power to weight ratio oh do you reckon? Oh. <laughs> well, do you reckon that would uh, probably uh, have a better performance uh, capability than, say, the L thirty nine? By the way, Grant, did you know I've ridden in one of those? <sighs> you hadn't mentioned it. Well, I hadn't mentioned it this episode uh, more not, than three times. Yeah, I know. I'm crying into the microphone over here. Okay, fine. <laughs> we happy? Happy uh, now? Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm always happy when I gaze up here at the three pictures of it on my wall here in the studio. Dude, dude, eight G's. Is that why you never come to this studio anymore, Grant? That's one of the many reasons. <laughs> Oh, dearie, dearie me. But in all seriousness, Anthony, I've heard it put around before that perhaps it even performs a bit better than the L39. Look, I'm not an expert. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, my understanding is it is it does, yeah. I think it's as a result of being a twin-engine airplane, and it was an actual combat aircraft. Uh, the L39 is a trainer, and so I guess it's built around that performance specs, but the A37 was uh, built to go and do ground attack and ground support for troops on the ground, firing rockets and weapons and all sorts of goodies into the ground at the baddies. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, uh, it's a, certainly a, a, a really powerful aircraft. Very, very cool. No worries. Well, I've got a shout-out here for uh, our friend over at the uh, Airspeed podcast, Steve Tupper. Now, we were talking earlier on about all the very sad uh, goings on there at Reno and uh, how that may affect uh, future shows. And, in fact, uh, you may well be aware as well that uh, only a couple of days later there was a crash at an air show. I think it was a T-28 Trojan, if memory serves, that was also lost at an air show. And, uh, of course, you know, there's been a big push on to differentiate between what is an air show and what is an air race. And uh, Steve, in a recent podcast... Uh, he actually doesn't number his podcast, but if you go to airspeedonline.com and have a look at the one entitled uh, Airshow Safety, the view from ICAS, a really, really fascinating discussion there with a gentleman from uh, ICAS, the International Council of Airshows, and talks about how uh, this issue looks from their side of the fence. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, big shout-out there to Steve. He always does outstanding work. Uh, he's always quick to praise us, but I tell you what, we always measure everything we do by what he does, that's for sure. Yeah, don't let that go to... You score a ride in an F-15, an F-16, uh, and everything else he's been for riding. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't let that go to your head, Tupper. I'm just not going there because, I mean, if I'm sulking over Steve's little L-39 flight, and Tupper's done the L-39, by the way, it's like, you know, I'm just going to cry in the corner. I wasn't, I wasn't even going to mention the fact that uh, Tupper and I are fellow L-39 riders. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... 
Steve does great work. Airspeedonline.com. Grant, uh, probably does it for the shout-outs, but uh, we've got an announcement to do since we're talking aerobatics. That's right, mate. The uh, New South Wales Aerobatics Champs are on at Tamora on Friday the 28th of October to Monday the 31st of October. So if you're uh, able to get there, go on over and watch some amazing aerobatics happening. Uh, it's always pretty interesting being on the ground, especially if you're able to either get near the box or be out even just hanging at the ramp and watching everyone come in and go out. Uh, I had the very great fortune of a very long time ago to be out at Gatnag when uh, a few of the crew were training and getting ready for some aerobatics comps coming up. And uh, there was a gentleman who was new to the pits, was being talked through doing an inverted flat spin. And so the guys were on the ground with the radio and he was up there flying away and they were talking through it. And then a, a few of the guys decided to do some fun departures. And yeah, for a, for a little um, aviation nut, it was great just being able to be surrounded by people who really loved their flying. So if you get the chance, get on out to Tamora, the end of October, and um, really enjoy yourself. Fantastic. Anthony, do you think you'll get a chance to get out there and see that at all or not? Um, I would love to go. Unfortunately, I won't be able to. I've got some other commitments. Okay, fair enough. So in that case, we'll put the call out to any of our listeners that might be attending the uh, New South Wales Aerobatic Championships there at uh, Tamora. We know we've got a few listeners out there at Tamora, so uh, if you want to send us in a report either by email or you can even record your own voice if you like, please feel free to do so. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, you can find out more about that actually at uh, aerobaticsaustralia.com.au. They've got a page there that uh, talks all about that. Well, okay, that's been a fascinating episode. Anthony, uh, in all seriousness, we've had a great time talking to you, mate. Um, you and I have been talking for uh, quite a long time, in fact, uh, since just before uh, New Year's about uh, the prospect of you coming and doing a little bit of work for us. And, uh, of course, we've been very busy, all three of us, with various and sundry projects, so it's taken a little longer to come to fruition uh, than we'd hoped. But uh, I, I'm really pleased that you've uh, come on with us this evening, and I'm even more pleased that uh, you'll be able to do a little bit of uh, work for us here and there in the future. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I hope that uh, I didn't drone on too long about myself. Oh, that's all right. We could make you drone even longer if you like, but you'd probably get sick of it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Without doubt. Mate, uh, <laughs> tell us where they can find your website online. You have three podcasts that you made. It's still uh, excellent podcasts and well worth a listen. Uh, where would we find those? Uh, I've got a uh, website, flyingantonline.com, and um, there's links at the top of the page there to no, there's not. There's links at the bottom of the page to the podcast and some other bits and pieces, some sundry bits and pieces that I've put up there for my own interest. And yeah, anyone's welcome to come and peruse and enjoy. Fantastic. So that's flyingantonline.com. And if you want to follow Anthony on Twitter, he's AntCB on Twitter. So uh, make sure you get over there. Tell him what a great job he did on this podcast. And hopefully he'll come back and talk to us again sometime soon. I'm l- looking forward to the, uh, all my mates emailing in telling me all the rubbish that I spoke. <laughs> <laughs> although although they, might not, they might not because they might flush them out as closet podcast listeners. Yes, oh, absolutely. Well, feel free, uh, all you guys, to uh, you know critique Anthony's performance and perhaps give him some friendly pointers for his next appearance here on PCDU. Oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> with friend, uh, to use the, the uh, famous phrase, with friends like that, who needs enemas? Okay, we've got plenty more coming up in the next couple of shows. We've got quite a few interviews recorded. Also, our uh, other raving reporter now, Kathy Mexted, has been out and about. She's been on a trip up to the uh, Flinders Ranges where she's been uh, collecting some uh, very interesting interviews up there. That'll be coming up uh, in the next episode. We've also had uh, a couple of uh, other interviews that we've done ourselves and uh, as if that's not enough uh, Anthony the infrequent flyer Simmons is uh, as we speak winging his way across to the United Kingdom 
and uh, actually he's going to be uh, attending the uh, Imperial War Museum Duxford's uh, Autumn Air Show. So if any of our UK listeners are there, uh, let us know and we'll let Anthony know you're there. Maybe you can have a bit of a uh, meet-up. So uh, very busy times here at PCDU and uh, yeah, I'm really positive about the uh, the way it's going uh, with all this, with all these extra people coming on board to help us out. It's really giving us some great reach and uh, you know we certainly hope that'll make a better show. So that's about everything we have for this show. Thanks very much for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode but until then, just remember this. It's What's Down Under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website, or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Okay, Grant, we're live, okay? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> and welcome back. Fo- uh, no, it's going to get a break. We can't say that. So there's a, we haven't had many bloopers for this, so I had to generate one. Oh, right. Yes. Grant, you're off your game. We would have had three or four by now. I'm being polite. <sighs> Unbelievable. Uh, I'm making up for all the stuff you've got to edit with me. <laughs> no, you're still a guest. You haven't really kicked in yet. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like Julia Gillard on 7th Eddie Report. <laughs> yeah, except we back off. Okay, dead air. Now, I'm sorry. I was concentrating on three other things while you were talking about that. Was I that boring or was I, Steve? No, no, no. I'm, I'm just terrible at multitasking. No, that's okay. I didn't hear the snore. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm madly trying to um, – I'm thinking – something good on TV. I'm thinking stretch, guys. Stretch because I'm tr- trying to find some listener mail to start off with. To get you um, – help, help, help me out here. Help me out here. <laughs> take, take some t- – uh, Instructor rating in this country – oh, I'm starting to sound like Steve – I'll pick that up from you saying this country. <laughs> um, can I? Okay. Yeah, go for it. Hello, control, my name is Grant Bigger. Send all hate mail to Grant. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> they do anyhow. <laughs>